News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. We're going to talk about a problem that I tell you universities and colleges everywhere are struggling to deal with right now. And that has to do with the use of AI chatbots. And they're really making universities consider changing everything about how they teach because they have become so prevalent. So many students are using these to do assignments that it's hard to tell these days when a student is actually doing their own work. So how do you combat this? Fascinating article I was reading about this in the New York Times. And one of the people they talked to is somebody who's joining us this morning is Anthony Alman, who's a professor of philosophy at Northern Michigan University. Anthony, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me on, Simi. It's a delightful to, to be here. Well, it was fascinating to read about this problem. How bad is this AI chatbot situation, like, say, in the classes that you teach? I think that we're just starting to figure out how bad it's going to be. I caught two students last semester, and that was just when it first came online. So I think this semester is going to be an experiment. So how did you catch them? Uh, to be honest, the essay was better than anything that most of my students could ever write. They followed the instructions <laughs> too perfectly, and the grammar was too great. It was unbelievable. And so did you, what did you do? Did you, go, did you confront them and be like, hey, what's the deal with this? So I was suspicious. So I actually submitted their essay to ChatGBT and asked ChatGBT whether it wrote it. And it said that there was a 99% chance that it did. And, and did so this... then I sent, the, I sent the results to the student. I said, hey, what's up? <laughs> and did they fess up? They fessed up. Okay, because like, is that technically against the rules, having something help you write a paper? Having something else help you write the paper isn't necessarily against the rules, but when you're using the chat's response word for word, we'd want you to at least give that credit and say where you're getting your material from. Okay, that makes sense to me then. Okay, how can you combat something like this, Anthony? Like, what did you change as a result of this? Well, the first thing that I want to change is maybe to have first drafts written in class with a lockdown browser where students wouldn't have access to it. Other professors are trying to do oral exams or even handwritten stuff. I'm sorry, what? Like, that sounds like we're going backwards in time to deal with this. I think that some people are really excited about returning to paper and pencil. I think that I want to lean into it rather than trying to avoid its existence. It's going to be there for the students when they graduate. Okay, so how do you, what do you mean lean into it? How do we do that? Uh, well, one thing I want to do is ask the chat what its response questions are in class. So usually it's just me and the students talking about some philosophical issue, but now we're going to say, hey, chat, what do you think about this? Huh. Interesting. Do you think also perhaps confronting it head on will let your students know, hey, I know about this? Yeah, at the very least, there's that. And I think that that talk to them, I mean, some of them don't know how to use it. And you can tell them, hey, look, these are the things that the chat is good for. And these are the things that the chat is not good for. Hmm. Okay. So do you know of other professors who are kind of struggling with this as well? Yeah, it is everywhere on the Facebook forums for philosophy teachers. Um, it is omnipresent in all of my discussions across the university. And so will this, do you think, be something that individual professors have to deal with? Like you and everybody else is going to have to find their own way to deal with this? Yeah, because the uh, administration is really loath to create a universal blanket solution for all professors. They want to give us the academic freedom to respond to it in the individual way that we want. Why do you think it's gotten to this point? Is it just too easy? It's first of all, there's always been people who you could like pay to write the essay for you. So in some sense, this kind of idea has been there all, all, all along. But what's neat about this is it does it so fast. In 30 seconds, the student can get an essay and it's so stinking good. 
too good for your students, apparently. <laughs> so how do you make sure, Anthony, that your the students in your class are are going to actually learn to grasp the like philosophy is not easy. I did not do well in my philosophy classes. So how do you make sure they are grasping the concepts? I think that you continue to have to have live discussion in class as a big part of what you're doing. Make sure that the students are orally engaging with the material at least to some degree and you know having them write their first draft in class forces them to make sure that at least that part they're not using the chat for. Do you consider it cheating? Uh, I think it's not cheating just to use the chat to help you. And the honest confession is that I use the chat to help me with my own work. What's cheating is to have the chat write the whole thing for you and then present it as if it's your own. Okay, so where's that line then? Like, where, where's the, what's the difference between that? It's fuzzy. <laughs> okay, but so... That's philosophy. <laughs> I was just going to say that, right? This, this is right up your alley. Perhaps you could explain that to me. <laughs> so I think that if... Uh, you like submit your essay and you ask the chat, hey, what are some ways that I can make my essay better? What are some potential objections that I need to consider? And then you take the time to integrate those ideas into your own essay in your own words, that's fine. If you are cutting and pasting wholesale the chat's responses and presenting that as your paper, that is not fine. But there's a whole range of things in between there where we get gray area. Hmm. Okay. So what you want to see then what might work is essentially the things that we heard about in elementary school, and that is show your work. Exactly. So one of the things I'm thinking about doing is telling the students, if you're going to use the chat, include a paragraph at the end where you tell me exactly how you used it and why. And do you think students will do that? If I require it of them. Wow. Okay. So this is actually more work for a lot of professors though too, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I think that there's temptation on the professor side too, because you know what? The chat can give you really great comments on the students' papers. Oh, so you think professors are using it too? So you get the chat bot to analyze students' papers, like to help you with grading? The chat will even grade the paper for you. No. It will, and it's pretty good. Of course, the chat has a bias in favor of essays that are written by the chat. <laughs> so the chat's going to like its own work. Absolutely. This, this is Everybody crazy. Likes their own stuff. Yeah, this is crazy. How did this take off so quickly? I don't, it's the same company that put out Dolly uh, that's creating AI art images that was kind of all the rage last semester. So that company in November 30th launched this chatbot. And I think it took off just because so many of us are so impressed with how amazing and how innovative it is. It could write a poem about your radio show and it would be a great poem. Now I'm, I think I'm going to have to go and check this out and get it to write this poem. So you're telling me this has only been around for about two months? There have been previous iterations of it, of course. Chatbots are really old. You know, you used to use them if you're trying to buy a mattress and have a little chat on the side pop up. But it's bad. It's horrible. What's new is how good this one is. Wow. Okay. So do you think this is it? This is the way of the future and universities better learn how to deal with this? I think that we have to learn how to deal with this. This is the wave of the future. My students need to lear learn how to use it because it's going to be a tremendous advantage for them after the workplace. Like I have a lot of students who can't write cover letters. The chatbot will write a great cover letter for you for applying for a job. That's an advantage. Okay, but let me ask you this. As a professor of philosophy, what, is that, what, that, what does that do to our skills, though? It used to be a great skill that somebody was a great writer and maybe another person was not as good of a writer as that person but now you've got a chatbot that can make everybody seem like a good writer. That's correct. Um, 
<laughs> but I guess in philosophy, what we're always interested in is the quality of your ideas rather than just your ability to express, express them clearly. So I have a lot of students in my class who aren't great writers, but have really interesting ideas and the chatbot can help them express their ideas when they previously have been unable to do so. Right. But I would imagine writers, like people who genuinely write for a living would think, I don't like this. Of course, that's true. But I think there's one thing that the chat will never be able to take away from us, and that's the joy of the creative process itself. There's always going to be people who just love writing for the sake of doing writing, creating something, and the chat will never deprive us of that. I hope not. Anthony, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me, Simi. This has been a real pleasure. Yeah, it was really interesting. That's Anthony Amon, who's a professor of philosophy at Northern Michigan University, talking about this new chatbot. And this one is so good that it's like, taking campuses by storm and really universities, professors, they're all having to rethink how they essentially hand out assignments, how they deal with assignments, because everybody is using this thing. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. When you hear about the opioid overdose crisis, what do you think? That it's a big city problem? That it mostly happens on the downtown east side? Well, neither of those is true, not by a long shot, but getting that through to the public has been challenging. Well, Kotlin Polytechnic University has taken on a, a research project trying to tell us some of the more unheard stories of this epidemic. And joining us now to talk more about that this morning is Dr. Aaron Goodman, who's one of the faculty members in journalism and communication studies at KPU. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. Now, we also have Kim Porter with us. Uh, Kim is a KPU research participant, so was in this project, but also wanted to talk about her son. Kim, thanks so much for being here this morning. Thank you for inviting me. Now, I'll start with you, Dr. Goodman. What is this project all about? Well, how did you come up with this idea to get started? Right. Well, as you said off the top, a lot of the media attention has historically been about the downtown east side in Vancouver and other larger centers. And uh, we know that in smaller centers, we're talking about communities of less than 100,000 people across Canada, the communities and residents are disproportionately affected by the toxic drug supply crisis. And a lot of people have lost loved ones. And because of a lack of journalism, harm reduction services, and pervasive stigma about substance use and people who overdose, experience overdose, a lot of people are really ultimately silenced. So what we decided to do was to invite 40 people in smaller centers across BC and Alberta to uh, use technology to come face-to-face -face on technology on the internet to speak with one another. So these are peer-to-peer -peer interviews in which people publicly um, memorialize loved ones and challenge uh, stigmatizing messages and really challenge the notion about who is grievable and also ultimately calling on authorities to do more, to respond to what the experts are saying that a lot more needs to be done to prevent further overdoses. Right, especially in these smaller communities. Now, Kim, you live in Medicine Hat in Alberta. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. You lost your 31-year-old son, Neil. Tell us about Neil. Um. Neil was my oldest, um, my only son. He was a lover of comic books, Batman, uh, skateboarding. He had many, many, many friends. He was uh, um, kind of a life of the party guy, had an amazing sense of humor. 
Um, he was easy to talk to. He was um, kind to people that were in struggling situations. And um, as his um, struggle with uh, his substance use and his mental health issues took over, um, some of those things went to the wayside, um, partially because of the stigma associated with his substance use. Um, he died um, on his own in his apartment um, on July the 1st, 2016. And um, the reason why I continue to advocate for policy change and to tell his story is to honour him and to give him the dignity that he deserved, which sometimes he didn't get when he was alive. Now, I know, Kim, you also recruited, right, helped recruit a number of people in Alberta to join the study. Did you feel that not enough of these stories are getting attention? Certainly. We, um, in smaller centres, um, people seem to know each other, and there, there definitely seems to be more stigma attached to people that struggle with substance use. It's not as out in the open. And um, so I think it's important for all of us to be able to speak out and tell our stories um, it helps us heal. Right. Dr. Goodman, that's so interesting what Kim just said there, that in smaller mm-hmm. centres, they feel more stigma. Did you hear that from other participants? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I certainly heard that very clearly from Kim and, and many, many of our uh, community-based collaborators, that just speaking openly in their own communities with their neighbours is something that is can be quite rare. And so what we're, uh, we're trying to challenge through this project is very much what Kim is saying. I think that we want to say very publicly that the people who died are very worthy of being grieved publicly. Um, They meant a lot to the people who contributed to this project. And and often the messages through the dominant media suggest that there are others, that they're social outcasts. And that tradition goes back decades. And we're trying to suggest that really to show, to reflect the realities that these individuals meant a lot to the people who participated in the project. And so how can other people explore the project? Yes, um, it's, um, it's being um, disseminated to the public through a podcast. And um, the project is called Unsilencing Stories. And people can go to a website called unsilencingstories.com. And people can also subscribe to the podcast for free wherever they get their podcasts. And it will be rolling out over the coming weeks. Kim, what was it like for you to participate? At first, I was quite anxious, um, as I am this morning on the phone, anytime that uh, you um, are given the opportunity to talk about uh, something that has been so painful, um, brings up lots of emotions. But um, the the flip side of that is... Um, Number one, I get to speak about my son. Um, number two, I get to honor him. And, and number three, I think the more we get to tell our stories and their stories, um, each, each time helps us get closer to um, feeling uh, like we're right in the world again, like we're whole, and that um, we're also um, making a difference. And is that the feedback that you got from other people who participated too? Did it make, did it help? Did it help other people? Kim, do you want to take that? Yeah, Kim? Uh, well, I know the, um, the woman that I interviewed um, here in Medicine Hat, I, 
I know it helped her. She hasn't been very forthcoming with her story. So that was one of the first times she was able to um, get into um, her situation and her loved one's situation in a deeper sense. And um, even though you can't measure that healing, I think that mm-hmm. um, that it's um, it's profound in a way that there isn't words for. Is there, is there something, Kim, that you would like to say to people? Like we talked about how difficult it is in small towns, like even to talk to your neighbors about this. Is there something you wish they would understand? First of all, that um, addiction isn't a choice. Um, and I think um, a second thing is um, right now we're dealing with more than an addiction issue. We're dealing with a tainted d- drug supply. And um, our neighbors need to understand that. Our politicians who make legislation need to understand that. So, Dr. Goodman, one more time then for people, where can the rest of us check out this project and when? Yes, we'd invite everyone to check out the project and listen to the stories of our collaborators at unsilencingstories.com and wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, both of you this morning. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, Kim. Thank you, Kim. Yeah, Kim Porter is uh, one of the research participants in this project, recording memories of her son, Neil, who had a fatal overdose when he was 31 years old back in 2016. Now, Kim lives in Medicine Hat, Alberta, and the point of this project with Dr. Goodman and the people, the students that he worked with, was to show that these smaller communities in Canada are really struggling. In fact, they say that it's, it's tougher for people, families, of those who overdose in these small communities because of the stigma surrounding addiction. So they assisted and talked to people in Cranbrook and Prince George and other smaller communities about the opioid overdose crisis and just how much of an impact it has had there. If we will think of it as a big city problem, right, or a downtown east side problem, it is definitely not that. This is Mornings with Simi. I think most people feel like when it comes to alcohol consumption, you know, yeah, they can have a drink, a day glass of wine at night. That's probably, I'm sure you've told yourself at some point, that's good for me, right? Part of the Mediterranean diet. Yeah, well, there's new national guidance on this. Just came out actually this morning. The Canadian Centre on Substance Use and Addiction now says that drinking more than two standard drinks in a week is a problem associated with increased risks. No, no, not a day, not a drink a day, two drinks in a week. Let's talk about this. Dr. Peter Budd is with us now, Associate Professor at the Academic Family Medicine at University of Saskatchewan. Dr. Butt, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Do you think these new guidelines will come as a surprise to a lot of people? Well, frankly, the numbers um, that we've found when we reviewed the evidence came as a surprise to us, there are a significant shift from the 2011 National Lowers Drinking Guidelines, and um, but they are aligned with the shift that's occurred internationally. Since uh, Canada did their last update in 2011, the UK, Australia, France, and the US have also uh, updated theirs. Okay, and how so does we- this update happen? Like, I understand they go through quite a few years of research on this. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, Not to get too technical, but fortunately we were able to build off the very rigorous work that the Australians did, reviewing the evidence up to 2017. So we did did systematic reviews of, oh, pardon me, it was uh, almost uh, over 5,000 
systematic reviews um, for 2017 to 2021 that our researchers did and looked at the evidence, developed risk curves, and um, then plotted points on the risk curve to identify key points where the risk changed. And so So the risk changes at more than two drinks a week? Uh, Yes. Well, one to two standard drinks per week is low to negligible level of risk. Three to six is what we would call moderate. And then when you get to seven standard drinks per week and more, you're into an increasingly high-risk zone. Now, I would imagine that this is alarming for a lot of people because I th- don't we know, Dr. Butt, that during the pandemic in particular, that people's drinking probably increased? It most certainly did. There were a lot of people that were chemically coping with alcohol and their consumption went up dramatically. And at the same time, uh, perhaps unfortunately, uh, governments increased access to beverage alcohol that was seen as an essential service, unlike mental health, for instance. Nevertheless, uh, a lot of people did run into problems during the pandemic and have had to dramatically decrease because they were drinking to get going in the morning. Okay, so that means that Canadians need to rethink how much they drink. Like, what is the average that Canadians drink right now? Well, it it varies. There are different ways to look at this. The, The good news, quite frankly, if you look at the Canadian population, And if you include the 22% of people in the country that don't drink, 60 to 61% of the Canadian population currently are already at that six drinks per week and lower level. So 40% are above that, and and really those are the ones that would be the ones we would want to primarily target because that's where the majority of alcohol is being consumed, of course. Keep in mind that just as the risk increases as we go up um, above six standard drinks per week, so also a person drinking at that level can exponentially improve their health and well-being by decreasing by just a drink a day, a drink a week, whatever the case may be. Less is better. Right. So simple. don't look at the bigger picture. Just maybe try try cutting down one or two drinks a week and see what happens. Absolutely, absolutely, and see how it impacts one's health and well-being. Now, we we also found that if a person is drinking more than two standard drinks on an occasion, they're more likely to run into problems from acute harm, such as accidents, injuries, and and violence. So per occasion recommendation is no more than two. And then the risk zones per week would be two for low, three to six for moderate, and of course, uh, seven plus for increasingly high. I just, I think a lot of people are going to be talking about this today. Dr. Butt, thank you so much for your time. You're quite welcome. Thank you. That's Dr. Peter Butt, Associate Professor in Academic Family Medicine at the University of Saskatchewan, talking about how for the first time in 10 years, Canada has updated its alcohol consumption guidance. First time in 10 years they've done this. And boy, this is a big change. They say Canadians should consider limiting their alcohol consumption to two drinks or less per week, per week. And the definition of a standard drink is a bottle of beer, one glass of wine, a shot glass of spirits, or a bottle of cider. That's one drink. And they're saying two or less per week is really what Canadians should be consuming. If you want to weigh in, and I'm sure you do, see me at cknw.com, or you can call or text our buzz line, 604-331-2899. 
This is Mornings with Simi. Certainly, and, and very concerningly, given the healthcare crisis we currently find ourselves in BC, we are going to see healthcare professionals choosing not to come to the province and other healthcare professionals planning their exit strategies to leave BC. And this is not something we can afford. That was Dr. Jennifer Lush, family doctor here in BC, on the show with us yesterday talking about Bill 36 and the concerns that some doctors have over it. It will change disciplinary measures for healthcare professionals and more. So let's break it down. And how does the health minister feel about the criticism from doctors? Well, joining us now is Adrian Dix, the Minister of Health. Thank you very much for being here. Good morning, Simi. Now, undoubtedly by now you've heard some of what doctors have to say. How do you respond to that? That uh, there's been more consultation on this bill than any other bill that I've been involved in. More legislative debate than just about, I think, any other bill we've been involved in. Uh, The consultation process started in 2018. There are significant processes that involved uh, doctors and many other health professionals in 2019 and in 2020. We had one of the most significant um, uh, engagements with Indigenous people subsequent to that, because as you know, since we started this very long process, we had the implant site report and we had the Reconciliation Act passed through the legislature. So we had to meet those tests as well. It's a significant reform. Uh, it does um, say that when misconduct is found, that, that misconduct has to be made public. It has to be posted, which is something that many journalists had requested, but also, of course, many members of the public. And you would expect that level of transparency. It's a good piece of legislation that updates uh, a 30-year-old law with respect to racism, anti-racism, and anti-discrimination provisions. And it uh, rationalizes, it makes more efficient our colleges. We were having more and more and more health colleges. We had about, we had 22 of them when I became Minister of Health. We'll have six afterwards. So as a process, I think um, it's really engaged with people over a long period of time. Thousands Thousands of people have taken part in this process. Uh, over the time of the consultation. And I think what we have is a good piece of legislation that will work not just for doctors, but for the range of health professionals covered by the Health Professions Act. One of the concerns that doctors expressed was that this gives too much power to the government. They said the government will now appoint the oversight board members and they won't be elected by the members as they were before. How do you respond to that? Well, right now, uh, both of the health colleges right now, 50%, are uh, opposed uh, are appointed i should say by the minister of health directly with no um restraint on that process now so that's what we do now and i think we do a good job in finding uh, qualified people to be public members of boards 50 percent are uh, are elected by election by the profession but remember what these bodies are they're regulatory bodies they don't represent the profession they oversee the profession they work uh, with health professionals to make sure their standards are kept high and then those rare cases where discipline is required to have uh, discipline. So what have we changed that to? We've taken away the authority of the Minister of Health and, yes, of health professions to decide um, exactly who's on the board. There's a superintendent. There's a merit-based process put in place. And in our consultation, that was overwhelmingly supported by people. So less power for the Minister of Health. Uh, uh, people may decide whether that's a good or bad thing to me, but less power for the Minister of Health in making appointments ultimately and less power for these electoral processes. One of the reasons you need to do that is when you have colleges that have a number of professions and you need to you need to ensure 
um, that uh, you have a high standard of regulation, and you can't, of course, have necessarily every co- every profession represented on the board of a college in that regard. But you know, I think that these were um, steps that came out of an independent review uh, by a guy named Terry Caton, who's a worldwide expert on uh, health regulation. They uh, they represent, I think. Uh, you know, a modern uh, health professions act that uh, addresses issues like uh, discrimination in an effective way. They allow professions to become regulated more easily. There's a lot of talk, for example, for clinical counselors uh, to become regulated. And in the case of the College of Physicians and Surgeons, there's still the College of Physicians and Surgeons. It's not being amalgamated because there are, you know, well over 10,000 uh, doctors in our province. And we kept the College of uh, Physicians and Surgeons in place. And it's led by an outstanding doctor, a former, I believe, president of the Doctors of BC, Dr. Heidi Otter. And that's going to continue. What about the, uh, the concern, this was brought up by some of the doctors we spoke with, about the provincial government being able to seize medical records? Does this bill give the government the power to do that? This is simply not true. And uh, the current act, the current act already allows for an, what's called an inquiry committee in an investigation. So if, say there's an investigation for abuse, and this doesn't happen very often, but say there is, it does happen, right? Then obviously those investigating and adjudicating that matter have the right to review records. That's the case in the law now, and it'll be the case in the law afterwards. That's not a change. Of course, if you're investigating for something serious in a professional body, you have the right to review records, but the government doesn't have that right. Is there any any way that changes could be made here? Like when you've listened to some of the concerns of what's been brought up in the last week well, or so, will you rethink some of this? Well, with great respect, the last change, the last thing that you just asked me about, which has been raised and, you know, uh, I think has the prospect of scaring people, is simply not true. So uh, we, of course, continue to talk to uh, the doctors of BC, but all uh, health professions about uh, this uh, this piece of legislation, which will be brought into force, of course, by regulation. It's a very significant piece and a significant com- consultation, and there will uh, there will continue to be on its implementation. You know, I, I think that uh, I heard somebody say, "Well, why why do this? Why engage in such a process uh, now? Why not leave an act that was out of date and wasn't working very well?" And uh, because of, and as demonstrated inquiries and in inquiries by the media, when I just leave it in place, we set forward a process and involved all the opposition parties, thousands of health professionals, and thousands of members of the public. And so it's a good piece of legislation that we'll be bringing forth by legislation. There'll be a lot more consultation ahead of us. Minister, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. Appreciate that. That's Adrian Dix, BC's Minister of Health, responding to doctors' concerns about uh, Bill 36, which I'm sure there'll be even more discussion about. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. About a year ago, when we started talking about this 25-cent fee on disposable cups in the city of Vancouver, boy, did that ever get people worked up. It still does. The whole point of it, though, was to help reduce waste. Putting a fee on disposable cups was supposed to deter people from using disposable cups. But has it actually worked? We don't know. That's the thing. The city said it's now collecting and analyzing cup distribution data from 2022. The city requires that individual businesses that don't offer a cup share option have to report the number of single-use cups 
that they distribute. And they have to do that when they renew their annual business license. So we still don't know exactly what kind of an impact this has actually had. And remember, the revenue, that was the thing about this too that got to people. The revenue doesn't go to some recycling program or measures to help reduce waste. The measures, the money goes into the revenue for whatever restaurant you happen to be at. So joining us now to talk more about this is Greg Wilson, the Director of Government Relations in BC for the Retail Council of Canada. Greg, thanks for being here. Good morning, Simi. Do you think this cup, disposable cup fee has had an impact? Well, I suspect it's had an impact, but it's not necessarily the impact that the city intended on. When it was introduced, the it was part of a suite of efforts to reduce the n- amount of single-use plastic that goes to the waste stream because it's part of an effort to reduce plastic, which we're reliably told is a, is a bad thing to have in landfills and in public spaces. Okay. But is it, is it actually reducing what people are using? It doesn't appear to be measure measurably reducing it. And I'm not certain that the city has collected enough data to be able to actually provide us with that answer. Right. So what are companies doing with the money then? Well, I mean, to be fair, the cups do cost some money. And, you know, this has been a constrained time for business as well. I mean, if you think of small restaurants and small independent coffee shops and small retail businesses, these are the people who struggled most during the pandemic. So, you know, in that sense, it's probably, you know, not unwelcome revenue, but this is not something that anybody asked for. And truthfully, um, with the cup fee came a whole bunch of people who complained to, you know, service workers about the cup fee. So, you know, yes, there was revenue, but there was also heartache and expense as well. So what would you tell the city of Vancouver then in, in terms of having this fee? Like, should they get rid of it? Should they improve it? Like, what should they do? I mean, we've always thought that it wasn't a good idea, and so we wouldn't have done it in the first place. So I suppose the best option would be to take it away. But assuming that that, that they're not willing to do that, they should exempt cups that have no plastic in them. Because, you know, there are now alternatives on the market that are made entirely with paper and that are therefore providing a better environmental outcome. Right, but is that are there ways to make it more nuanced, do you think? Are there ways to you know, reward the businesses that perhaps go a little bit farther and do the extra mile? Well, I don't know that you'd be rewarding the businesses. You would be rewarding the consumers who don't have to pay the 25 cent fee. Um, But I think businesses want to be responsible to the environment. And accordingly, you're already seeing without somewhat independent of the city's bylaw, because the city's bylaw applies only in Vancouver. And it's a worldwide trend that people are moving to the use of fiber to replace those plastic cup lids and the cups themselves and, you know, various other elements, single-use elements. Greg, do you think the bylaw has had a ripple effect like in any other jurisdictions? Have they looked at this to see what Vancouver is doing? Well, I'm not certain that the ripple effect would be what uh, the the city wanted. I think the ripple effect might have been the opposite because I think it's been quite controversial and there have been problems, for example, a year ago around free cups and free drinks, um, where you had to charge somebody for a 25 cents for a glass for a cup just to get water. I mean, you know, these things have been um, fairly well publicized. 
What hasn't been publicized is the cost to business. You know, the article in the newspaper yesterday said that many of the businesses do not have this on their menu boards or on their menus. Some don't have it on their receipts. These are all things that cost businesses money. So we talked about the extra revenue, but we haven't talked a lot about the extra expense to businesses. What about the cup share program, right? That's, that was supposed to be, I think, probably more widely in effect. It's been a year. What's the uptake been like? So one of my members explained this very well to me, so I'll use them uh, their explanation. Consumers are showing a distinct preference for the China cups and their own reusable pop cups, which tend to be metal, over the ones pr- that are part of the cup share programs, which tend to be plastic. And so um, that's understandable, I think, for most people looking at it. They want the more durable China variety rather than sort of a hard plastic. And in a situation where we're being told to avoid plastic, it seems counterintuitive to have a cup share system that is, you know, plastic cups. Right. That's so true. So it does it just sounds to me, Greg, the way you describe it, there's still a lot of bumps in this system. There are a lot of bumps in the system. And at the beginning, we would have told Vancouver that the better way to do this would be to pilot it and see how it worked. There were willing, you know, there were some chains of quick service restaurants who are willing to pilot with the city of Vancouver in an effort to try to find solutions. There are a lot of people who, a lot of businesses are interested in finding solutions Um, And I think that the better work would be done to work with them and find those. Is that what would your advice then be to the city of Vancouver? Is it to revisit this? Go back to those businesses? Yeah, I think council needs to revisit it. I mean, the evidence is that a very small percentage of independent coffee shops and independent restaurants are actually fully compliant with the bylaw. Um, Partly that's because they don't know, but in in good measure, that's because it's costly to comply with that bylaw. All right. Well, Greg, thank you very much for your time this morning. Yep. Have a good day. You too. That's Greg Wilson, Director of Government Relations in BC for the Retail Council of Canada, talking about that disposable cup. Remember the bag fee that was instituted in the city of Vancouver about a year or so ago? Like, we've gotten used to it now. But here's the thing. I wonder... If they did away with it now and said, yeah, you know what, we're not getting enough proof of, of, you know, what's going on here or where the money is going, would it still make us think twice about what we're doing? Would you still think, oh, I don't want to use this disposable cup or, you know, maybe I don't need that bag? Or would people just go back to their habits? I don't know. You can weigh in with your thoughts. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. We've talked about it for a few years now, but now there's a plan to revitalize historic Chinatown in Vancouver. And that plan is actually going before City Council this week. Let's talk more about it. Sarah Kirby-Young joins us now, Vancouver City Councillor. Thanks for being here this morning. Good morning to me. Now, while I have you, we were also uh, just talking with the Retail Council of Canada about the, you know, Vancouver's disposable cup fee and, and the bag fee. Do you think that bylaw is working the way it was intended? Well, I didn't vote initially for the implementation of the cup fee because I was concerned uh, that it wasn't necessarily going to change behavior and also that the city doesn't have jurisdiction over the funds to collect those as a tax. So they are retained by the business and that provides very little accountability about how that money is spent. So if you think that uh, we estimated about 80 million cups, for example, uh, coffee cups discarded in the city of Vancouver at 25 cents a cup, about $20 million potentially, it's a lot of money. 
Um, and you want, but mo- more importantly, you want really uh, effective policy behavior that drives that change. My sense is in the early days, what we're hearing is a lot of people are just paying that fee um, and it's not necessarily changing behavior, but um, I think we'll be guided by the data and be looking for some of that uh, data to come back because we're going to make evidence-based decisions. But I think it's really important that we have a policy that not just looks green, but it actually is green. Any timeline for when that data might come back? Yeah, we're having that conversation actively with city staff now uh, to take a look at it and determine what the balance is between waiting for that information and whether or not it makes sense to make a change. All right, good. We'll have something to talk about then. Uh, Let's talk about this uplifting Chinatown action plan. What does this involve? So it's called uplifting Chinatown for a reason, uh, because the neighborhood has been really hard hit. As you know, it's struggling. Um, And this is really about telling Chinatown that we're going to be fighting for them and help is on the way. Um, It was difficult with the last council to get enough resources uh, in the neighborhood that people could really tangibly see help coming. Um, So this report we're passing this morning really seeks to tackle those day-to-day issues that people are experiencing. So it's the constant vandalism, tacking, the graffiti, um, Chinatown not being as clean as it needs to be and well looked after. And so it's putting direct, dedicated funds towards that. Okay. And so how would this be tackled? What would happen? Uh, So there's a number of pieces to it, expanding uh, the feces collection program, uh, which unfortunately is a a thing and is an issue now, Uh, more microcleaning, more street sweeping and flushing by uh, city sanitation, uh, large-scale new litter cans in the neighborhood, uh, a neighborhood cleanup program. So the city has supported those. You sometimes see them annually with volunteers going out. That would happen now um, every month instead of once a year. Um, putting things like $150,000 of graffiti abatement funding directly towards um, those businesses and private property that are tagged, that are constantly um, just feeling beleaguered by that and not able to keep up. Continuing positive things like the mural and the placemaking program, uh, working with the BIA uh, to do some sidewalk activation, um, and just making Chinatown feeling loved and a great place to visit. There's a lot of great things going on down there. New Chinese Community Museum coming the Chinatown Storytelling Center, but I was really disturbed to hear from sort of legacy linchpin businesses like Newtown Bakery that they're feeling sad and frustrated um, and saying that it's too tough every day to throw in the towel. My message is like, don't do that. Help is on the way and we're going to be taking this seriously. So if this gets passed, then how quickly would that support arrive for those businesses? It will be starting in the next couple of months. Uh, so this is that we've been moving really quickly. This was on our very first council agenda after we got elected in November. Uh, this is our first meeting of the year back in 2023, and we're dealing with it. And then it will be starting up in the next couple of months. Okay. And where would the money come from for this? Uh, it'll come through the general budget process. So we're in the process of reviewing the budget now, and we were very clear in the campaign that uh, Chinatown's a priority. So we're going to be making sure that these funds are flowing. So can you see this as a model, perhaps, for other neighborhoods that might need some revitalization? Yeah, absolutely. And the report was it's called Uplifting Chinatown, and obviously a large portion of the funds go directly towards it. There's also other funding in here, for example, half a million dollars of graffiti abatement funds for the other BIAs and the other neighborhoods in the city. Strathcona, Gastown, um, around the downtown east side that experience similar problems um, because we know that these are all interconnected and so uh, we're, we're definitely going to be um, upping that as well as additional funds for cleaning as well um, in surrounding neighborhoods. I think there's a lot of people who hearing that would think, well, you know what, there's more areas than just Chinatown. Obviously, Chinatown needs it, but other areas also need lots of cleaning, larger litter bins, um, you know, especially in downtown Vancouver. Yeah, absolutely. That's why there's this report has identified a funding 
um, contribution at this point of $2.1 million and one point four is going into surrounding neighbourhoods and $700,000 direct dedicated funding to Chinatown. Right. So can you see this like for other areas like, say, the Granville District? Oh, absolutely. In fact, we we have a report on Council's agenda tomorrow on Wednesday, which is really about advancing a very um, bold planning program to revitalize Granville Street and letting enabling more hotels coming in, looking at projects that have great merit like um, 800 Granville that would revitalize the Commodore and add office and bring life to the street during the daytime as well as the nighttime uses. So um, we are tackling both of those neighborhoods or priorities. Oh, interesting. Then, so how far along is that the Granville report? Uh, the Granville report, um, council passes that tomorrow. That planning process will get underway, take about a year and a half. But really important that we want to see um, investment happen in the short term. So looking, as I said, to advance some of those positive projects that have cultural legacies like a Commodore revitalization or uh, like enabling new hotels. Um, as you know, we have FIFA coming up in 2026. Uh, we have a huge shortage of hotel rooms. It's the largest sporting event in the world. So it makes sense to look at those opportunities and get going on some of them now. Yeah. Do you see these areas as, as definite targets? Because people congregate there, whether it's Chinatown or Granville Street, people congregate there regardless. And it just feels like we're not giving them very much. Yeah, I, I think it, with, with respect to a lot of the social issues, and there's been a lot of conversation around that, um, particularly around SROs, that it's not dignified housing and we need to replace that stock um, and diversify that stock which will happen over time. Uh, but in the meantime, we need to invest in the neighbourhoods. And I, I think that's where a lot of uh, challenges uh, can kind of come together and you see some of those impacts in terms of daily uh, daily experience on the streets. All right. Well, thanks so much for talking to us about it this morning. Thanks, Amy. Have a great day.